back to another episode. I'm Isha. And I'm Amon. <laughs> Thank you guys for joining us again for another personal Mike episode. Um, no, I'm joking. I'm Amon. She's Isha. No, I'm actually Amon. We're, we're both Amon. Now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> sorry, to, sorry to break it to you, our listeners. You've we're, been listening to the same person this entire time. I don't know what to tell you, but I hope your minds haven't been blown. All right. Just like last semester, we'll be doing a spotlight section um, for each episode for this semester. Um, where we introduce organizations of color to bring more awareness to their efforts and successes on campus. So, if you'd like to be wired in to our spotlight section, fill out the Pastel Mike Spotlight Google form. You can find it in the bio of the Michigan in Color Instagram page or in the description of this episode. And now we're going to hand it over to our content producers. Lauren, take it away. Okie dokie, it's that time of year, everybody. Rose bouquet sales are at their highest. Couples and situationships are getting all close and personal. It's cuffing and season. And flying <laughs> babies are shooting heart-shaped arrows at innocent, unknowing civilians. <laughs> Can you feel it? Smell it? Love is in the air. It's a beautiful thing but can be complicated by our identity. As BIPOC people, we find ourselves vulnerable when navigating the dating scene in ways that our white counterparts do not. Today's episode is going to be about fetishism, desirability or lack thereof, and how your race or color can complicate your pursuits of love. Now with every episode, we speak from our personal experiences backed with research we have done and learned through. Now due to that, we won't be able to cover every single identity group nor experience, but we hope that this begins to spark a conversation about the topics that we discuss. Now, when we're dealing with big terminology like fetishism and desirability, I think it's really important to define it, uh, including its social effects. Now, Stacey and Forbes defines racial fetishization as race-based fixation on a bodily part or characteristic that involves both idolization and demonization of racial difference. And it's not a positive thing because they have noted that as a result of racial fetishization, their population, men of color, describe feeling, one, objectified, two, that it hindered the formation of platonic or intimate connections, and three, box in and minimize to stereotype. And I feel like the, the easiest way to see uh, racial fetishization is through the porn industry. Now, if we look at Pornhub Insights, which they release every year, um, the most viewed categories by gender are for men, one, Japanese, two, ebony, three, mature, not exactly sure what that yeah, means. Yeah, we, we don't really know what mature is, but, but it's funny. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's funny. Four, MILF, and five, lesbian. They, um, they remind you to do your taxes. Yeah. Oh, paying so a mortgage that's, that's is exactly very it. attractive. Yeah. Um, but do we think that the MILFs aren't paying their mortgages? They might not. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah. Now, women's favorites are one, lesbian, two, Japanese, three, threesome for ebony and five mature again like i think we're really getting into the tax conversation here mm -hmm. now in terms of u.s proportion of viewers on pornhub 72 percent of them are men and 29 percent of them are women adding on to that pornhub's number one worldwide search in 2022 remained and i feel like i need to under underline that remained <laughs> um hentai followed very closely by japanese Searches for MILF swap places with lesbian, followed by Pinay, or Filipino woman, to complete the top five. Ebony and Massage searches both saw a drop being replaced by, am I allowed to say this, big ass, <laughs> <laughs> threesome, and Latina. Um, now, specifically for U.S. searches, Ebony and Latina searches moved ahead of Asian to round out the top five. And Americans uh, were more into big ass than BBC in 2022 big tits increased by four while bbw or big beautiful women went down by four on the list how pornhub got this data 
they did not explicitly say, but Dylan Curran on The Guardian notes that Google Analytics captures incredibly specific information about you, such as your device, your age, your demographic, and so and so. And so we're kind of like, they probably can't directly track us, but their advertisers and Google can tie all of that information from your personal identity. So stay safe on the internet. Incognito also does not protect you. Um, now on to definitions of desirability. <laughs> Okie dokie. So when we look at desirability or lack thereof, we're really looking at the erotic market, which is a sociological term um, that was defined by Randall Collins, but was further synthesized um, by Laura Hamilton. And the erotic market is kind of talking about any social space, public space in which um, your looks and sexuality um, can be used. Um, and specifically, we're looking at the fact that there is a hierarchy of desirability, which largely has to do with, but is not limited to physical attractiveness. Um, in this case, desirability, in the same way that money and other things are resources, it is a resource and capital. It can help you gain things within this market um, and can give you access to partnerships, but goes way past that. In the case of this episode, we'll be talking about mostly partnerships, um, but it's important to note that it can allow you better treatment or allow you to be treated with honestly basic, basic respect. Um, and in contrast, lack of desirability can have grave effects um, on you and your access to relationships, access to jobs, access to uh, good health care, your treatment within the criminal justice system, as well as other life outcomes. The effects of this system and the erotic market and the need to play into embodied capital disproportionately affects women um, than men due to patriarchal systems. As we probably have all experienced, women and the way that they look and their beauty is seen as a commodity, is, is seen as something that is the bare minimum. If you're not a beautiful woman, then you're just not treated with respect. So we're gonna keep that in mind and how race specifically can complicate these things because it's something that affects us all. So yeah, we can move into questions now that we have some basic background of the systems that we're working with. So to start us off, is your race or skin tone of yourself or your potential partners a factor that you consciously think about when dating or partnering? Yeah, I was having this conversation with one of my friends. She's Indian, but she was. we were talking about how if we can see ourselves marrying not an Indian person... Because right now she's dating a white guy, and I think it's hard for her because of all the cultural differences and kind of the pressure put on her by her parents to kind of get married to an Indian person. I think it kind of comes, like, subconsciously for me. Like, I don't think I necessarily, like, look at prospective partners be like, oh, they're not brown, like, I can't date them. But I think it just, like, it's always in the back of my head that, oh, my parents might not be so happy with this, like what are they gonna think? What are like extended family members gonna think? I think it mostly comes down to what are other people gonna think rather than what I think. Cause I personally don't care. I think I find like, I'm not like looking at race when I find people attractive. Cause usually I'm like looking at the personality. So I think I think about it, but mostly because of my family. I, I definitely relate to that. Like I'm not discounting people because of their race, but one thing that does come up is how, how it may look like down the road. And that's a little heavier for me because my family is Muslim and that plays a part because I'm generally expected to marry, at least in my parents' eyes, a Muslim woman and beyond that, a Muslim Bengali woman because I am also Bengali. Um, so for me, I have to 
keep that in consideration if I do consider a partner who isn't those two identities, how hard it might be that for them. Um, and in some degree, how hard it might be for me to be related to. Because I, I personally have found it the case that it's, it's more relatable to date a person of color mm. than, um, than not. So yeah, it's, it's not a, I guess, deal breaker, but it is on the list. It mm. is a list of, of things that I think about, that I consider, that I'm open towards. Like I'd, I'll definitely, I'm, I'm, I'm the type of person to definitely let the person know this on like the first date or something. <laughs> like, hey, by the way. Because, <laughs> um, you know, some people just aren't up for that. And that's okay. You know, we all have our um, values when it comes to considering partners and whatnot. I really resonated with what you said about how, well, what Isha, what you mentioned about your friend dating, like their partner being white, mm-hmm. and then also what you guys just both kind of alluded to about cultural differences and how a lot of the times when considering white partners, it becomes a greater barrier. And that's like a lot of the yeah. conversations I have with like friends and like my partner themselves, like kind of saying how being at the outskirts of a community or like being a minority and like understand how people have like certain expectations or stereotypes about us being able to kind of like move past it a little bit more seamlessly helps a lot and so like definitely when I had started dating or you know coming into the space I was like there's gonna be a lot of things that other people more and more specifically like white people will not be able to understand and not that every single community under communities of color that like a large umbrella would be able to exactly know what I'm feeling. It's just more like, I think it's easier to have these conversations of being open about culture, of being open about how race impacts us than I have with a lot of like other white counterparts, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And that's not to say it's absolutely impossible. Right. But it's, it's just a bigger barrier, like you said. Yeah. When I like thought about this question, it was like a yes and a no, but mostly yes. I feel like race isn't like a defining factor in like who I choose to partner with, but it becomes more of a factor if I imagine like a longer term relationship. Um, just because I know like anti-blackness is a very real and per- pervasive thing in all communities, white and of color. Um, so the last thing that I need to do is like meet someone's parents and like realize that they have negative feelings about me from the get-go just because of stereotypes about black people. Um, or if they're like scared that their grandchildren are gonna be dark and like that's like their worst fear um, that their like partner is gonna have kids with someone that's gonna like taint their their family line because of my blackness. Um, and I also think like race is huge um, because I think there's negative stigmas and like weird fetishization on the other side um, of like interracial couples. And um, I'm very conscious of that and like how it's perceived by others um, when I do partner with people. Um, even when I date like within my own race, I am still conscious of like what it looks like visibly um, just because there's still stigmas and like normative images of like what black couples should quote unquote look like. Um, I think that there's the stigma of there should be like the lighter skinned black woman dating like the darker skinned black man as like an example. There's like a lot of like colorism and like featureism that goes into like what people imagine couples should look like. So that's definitely something I am conscious of. Um, and then lastly, I think that when it comes to like my race and 
like dating if I'm like thinking about it there's also just like super grim statistics of like black women and their social desirability and the rate of marrying like out of literally any group in the U.S. black women are like the least likely to get married um so you know sometimes that comes to my mind I'm like the clock is ticking like what's happening here but like I don't know the lack of desirability is definitely something that like is looming just because of those statistics but at the same time I think that like the fetishization is also something that I'm like worried about as a black woman because we're living in a world in which like black women are hypersexualized. Mm-hmm. On that note, I think that's like a really good transition to our second question, talking about fetishism and this idea of undesirability. And though it might sound like a binary, they're oftentimes placed in relation to one another. It's like it's an entire spectrum in and of itself. And so many binaries create a false sense of good versus bad within these concepts, and they don't allow for a wide range of experiences and understandings that portray how complex they are. So, you know, on that note, does anyone have any personal experiences or things that you've read online, if you're comfortable with sharing them, with fetishism or a lack of desirability, including all its complexities um, that maybe affect the way that you view these two concepts? You know, I definitely perceive the whole idea of desirability of an Asian woman or like, you know, because I know that I present as an East Asian femme um, and like, you know, the statistics from Pornhub really clearly show that as well. And I was just like, wow, hentai for two years in a row. (laughs) Um, I feel like I exist on the peripheral of these two concepts just because a lot of the times the way that I perceive it and also because I grew up in a predominantly Asian community. I mean, I, I grew up in Indonesia. And so I felt like that there was a very specific mold of Asian desirability, both in the context of like in white communities and like white people, and then also within Asian communities itself, you know. Um, and so like finding it difficult to fit within it. So aspects involved include like, you know, colorism, lookism, fat phobia, notions of femininity and gender, and being queer as well as like not skinny and like not fitting into like that size expectation in Asia. I think it was really hard to do that because I, I feel like I've experienced a lot of undesirability in my life. Um, and, and then, and then, then I got older a little bit, barely legal. And then entering this like dating sphere, um, at the same time, I had like lost a lot of weight at the same time. Um, I came out with my sexuality and then at the same time I entered an online dating pool within Korea, yes, but a lot of them also white men. And then, in, like, I've always felt in my entire life, but this was the most explicit in my face of fetishizing me, of, like, men, like, tilting and, like, pulling their eyes and being like, I'm, I'm over here for, like, these, like, Korean and, like, Chinese ladies, bro. Like, you're, I can't believe you're doing this on Tinder. That's embarrassing. And the whole idea that... Um, an Asian woman is to be conquered, and like the, the the sexual stereotype of Asian woman that Nancy Wang, who is um, a Biola University professor of sociology, she talks about the sexual stereotypes of Asian women being submissive, fetishized, exoticized, and even like going into like physiological differences. And so, you know, to be a little bit more explicit, be um, talking about vaginas and labias being smaller, tighter, things to dominate, um, exotic lotus flowers, dragon ladies, temptresses, and like immediately sexualizing an entire group of people. So getting into the dating pool, not only knowing this, but then also experiencing it like firsthand, 
made me feel so at odds because I'm like, dang, entire life being undesirable and then now immediately being desired for something that I don't want to be desired for, something that isn't necessarily me, definitely show how complex these two binaries are. And compared to those that do not experience desirability, um, like I've discussed before, it can affect like your life outcomes. It can affect the jobs that you have access to. It can affect the way that people treat you. It can affect how people treat you in medical settings. It can affect um, the like how you're perceived in the criminal justice system. Um, these are huge things, and I think that like within my own community, something that like. I can understand is like colorism and how that affects um, the way people are perceived. Like lighter skinned black women are fetishized for the way that they look. Um, I don't know. Everyone's seen the way that everyone screams over Zendaya. Zendaya is the only like black woman like actor that everyone like has a crush on quote unquote. Um, and it does have a lot to do with the fact that she's like a mixed black woman, lighter skinned black woman. and it is dehumanizing that like her features as a result of being lighter skinned is negative, but also we've seen the ways in which that has contributed to her career. And the same can be said about other industries, not just acting, um, but the music industry. It's like a whole, there's studies upon studies about the fact that like lighter skinned women in the music industry have way more chances to make it big than darker skinned black women. So it, it is fetishization, it is a negative thing, but at the same time, it, it does have its benefits. And I think that's something that's like hard to grapple with. I kind of wanted to add on to that because I think when we talk about fetishism, how ultimately when we're talking about its definition, it does involve a certain level of desirability. I, I, I think I just want to be careful talking about the benefits of that just because, you know, I see on the news and I have personally experienced myself and the ways in which fetishism begins to feel dangerous. Like, I think the most notable example of that are the Atlanta shootings, where six out of eight of the people who were killed were Asian women. And that really sparked or re-sparked a dialogue about how talking about how in, in this situation, these Asian women were treated as the problem. They were, quote, externalization of his own issues of fetishization, which feels totally dehumanizing for, I think, a lot of the people who resonate with it. I think on the one hand, fetishization, because of its links with desirability, can be seen to have, weirdly enough, like positive, quote unquote, positive effects because of that additional attention but when that attention begins to feel dangerous is when people are shot or when people experience sexual violence and assault and rape and you know honestly linking it back to a current issue right now is so there there's been like an article published anonymously talking about things that the student has heard from this predator saying how he would like shoot up a place like a party because like they wouldn't allow him in about several women that I know personally who have been targeted and followed and stalked so which is why I'm like a little bit hesitant to fully agree with what you're saying but at the same time I do understand the complexities of it but that was like the first thing I thought of when you were mentioning that I think it's like hard for me to separate fetishism and lack of desirability in general because they're both based on the desirability hierarchy and the hierarchy in itself is based on the beauty standards that we consume. I think it, it depends on the context of where you're looking at it. I think that fetishization is dangerous 
objectively. But I think that if you sit higher on the desirability spectrum, there are still benefits. And I feel like it's not discussed enough, if that makes sense. It's complex, and I feel like we stray away from the conversation of the complexities that exist and don't have those conversations enough. And I think that we should, because on the other end, this is not debating what you're saying, by the way. I, yeah, like, no, agree. I yeah. But, like, on the other end, in terms of, like, lack of desirability, like, a lot of the danger that exists is still there. There's dark-skinned black women that are attacked on the Internet and in person for being darker-skinned black women and not having that desirability. They're seen as unhuman and as animals because they don't have desirability. A lack of desirability in the same way that in very similar ways dehumanizes people and makes it seem like they don't deserve protection and they, they have experienced violence, except one of these groups experiences like benefits in conjunction with the violence. And I don't think this is something that can be separated because I think that like in every single one of these groups that we talk about, it's fluid. I think that black women, Asian women, people of color in general, all can experience fetishism, but they can also, because we're living in a white supremacist system, experience lack of desirability. One person themselves in one context can experience fetishism and experience lack of desirability. So it's not to say that like these things aggregately are not serious. It's that like as we navigate different spaces, we experience both of these things depending on what context we're in. And we just need to be conscious of the ways that like we're interacting and realize that we're experiencing, experiencing these things relative to other people and noticing if I'm in this place, if I see that I'm a lighter skinned individual, if I'm an individual with more palatable features, more fetishized features compared to someone else that's in the room, and are they treating me better because of this? Are they treating me as more human and worth more respect because of this? This kind of reminds me of this cut video that came out just a little bit ago where they have like the two opposing sides and the button no no <laughs> <laughs> the button the button's funny though but this one this was either cut or jubilee and it was anti-feminist women versus feminist women jubilee okay jubilee and it reminds me of this one question that they asked on it where it was like i crave men's like validation and I remember one of the one of the feminists were saying like it's not even in a sexual way that they crave validation but because we live in a patriarchy and like white men are usually the leaders or, like in power it's like they crave validation even for that they crave validation to maybe like get good jobs to like maybe have more protection or I think she was talking about it more in like job sense I I kind of I was like thinking about something really about like a personal experience that kind of like lined up with that. Um, last summer I had worked in a bar when I was in Korea and there are like US military bases in Korea still to this day. And a lot of them go over to the area that I was working at on the weekends when they, you know, have time off. I think, I think just being like a femme presenting worker to begin with, especially when you're like clientele and the consumers are men. Mm -hmm. 
like I just noticed that a lot of these people, like these workers, they play into their sexuality mm-hmm. of knowing that they are desired, of knowing they're being commodified and, and like consumed in a fetishized way, regardless of like their race or their skin tone. Like I think all like this now now we're just talking about gender, we all kind of like play into that. And like I have received like a lot of comments of these men like desiring me more mm-hmm. and they're not every single time they're not necessarily white just a majority of them are of desiring me and wanting to interact with me mm-hmm. because i was like east asian presenting obviously they didn't say it in this in these words but you can you can read between the lines and then also just the way that a lot of these like u.s um military forces and their men historically historically going back to uh nancy wang yuan the professor of sociology she talks about how the u.s military was really involved in wars in asia and how when these gis are over there asia they're participating in the sex industry that was there so that is already in place historically and still continues to this day where a lot of them are there to have sexual relations or intimate relations with a lot of the asian women around them and like, yeah, I don't know. That just kind of like made me yeah. think of that, like playing into that sexuality in order to be treated better. Yeah, exactly. And then when that went a little bit too far, that resulted in, I don't know, stalking. Yeah. But yeah, I, I, I feel like I see that link between what Lauren was saying and what Isha was mentioning as well. Okay. It's easy to reflect on the ways in which these concepts are externally inflicted on you. However, can anyone reflect on the ways in which they have either themselves or others in community and their community been socialized to have certain racial preferences or to avoid certain racial, ethnic, or religious groups, or socialized to not seek love outside of your community at all? I think in in my community, like, my mom will, like, make jokes a lot of the time where, or not even my mom, but in the Indian community, I think there's a lot of colorism, so they're really is i know especially for like arranged marriages too like the woman should be light skinned like the woman should look like this look like that while like the man it could literally care less about what like color their skin is so i think there's a lot of colorism in the indian community and it's it gets it's just like why are we still doing this like why does this still matter i don't know it it just gets so frustrating at times because people around me even in the U.S. like a lot of my family friends who have immigrated from India to the U.S. like they still kind of like have these beliefs and I'm like I don't know it just gets it gets so tiring after a while to always like obviously I could literally care less but it gets tiring to be around people who care about things like that. Yeah I mean I I, I would agree I, I see the same thing too in the Bengali community and you know the intersection of Bengali Muslim because you wouldn't. I. I've never had these conversations explicitly with my parents, um, but you hear stories about some folks who married outside, and then you see the kind of effect the community collectively agrees to have, and in a lot of cases, they don't talk to them anymore, which is ridiculous that you would even do that. So, for me personally, like in my life, it wasn't hard to find this, to to understand this explicitly and then express that that's not a value that I share and then to completely ignore that and date who I want to. (laughs) But I, and and this is tying back into the first question, right? That in order to kind of be mindful for whomever I get involved with, 
I have to think about that and I have to think about what they would go through if they were not of the same religion or race. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, I, I, I'm going to love who I love and that's all that matters to me. And so if whoever so happens to be on the other side of that wants to go through that journey, um, I'd be down. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like for me personally, like I went to like a mostly like brown, like South Asian, like majority high school. And I did like also hear stories about people's parents, like explicitly telling them not to like date or partner with people of certain groups, like not to date black people, not to date Muslims. Like it was a thing. Like I've heard several conversations from several different people like about this exact thing. And I was like, honestly shocked. Like this is a conversation that people were like blatantly having, but that just like wasn't my experience. Like dating in race or just like dating in general, honestly, like wasn't a conversation in my home. But like, I don't think that you have to like have such explicit conversations about who to date and who not to date to be socialized into having certain preferences. I think that just like growing up in like the society like that we have, like a Western society, <clears throat> you are socialized to just like, like see certain things as like desirable. I think like consuming mostly white dominant media and black American media as I like grew up has definitely informed the things that I find attractive or I'm interested in. As I got older, I definitely exposed myself to media from other cultures, which also again have like influenced like who I find attractive and like why I'm able to find attractive because I think that exposing myself to different images outside of like the white dominant media has allowed myself to like normalize these images and to like humanize people beyond just their features. But like again, realistically, we have grown up in a very white supremacist, racist, colorist, texturist, featurist world um, and that will and has played a role in like how I see both myself and potential romantic and sexual partners. Yeah, no, what what you said is like, I very much resonate with that because I just like, I spent a lot of time, I think a lot of us do, like spend a lot of time consuming media from like social media, from news, being aware of how ist and like how, how slanted our society is to like one particular type of person and like the privilege that this person has, like forcing myself to curate my feed to fit a wider range of people has helped a lot and not only like how I view others but also how I view myself and then on like what would you mentioned like being when you were younger like your friends saying how their parents essentially restricted them of their dating pool my parents kind of like did the same thing uh, they're both like old they're from like the older generation very traditional Koreans and there's like a there's like a tri-racial system hierarchy in Korea which I think which is something that I think Ko Jun-tae from like the Korea Herald talks about really well in their article, the idea of us versus them. And like the low-key xenophobic comments that a lot of people in Korea have made that, you know, that I've been around. And so this whole, I think like colorism extends everywhere truly. And I, I had experienced that a lot when I was in Asia, both in Korea, both, both in Korea and in Indonesia. But I think what's really interesting, and I kind of wanted to add this to the conversation is that intersection of race and ethnic identity along with how I identify as queer because growing up 
believing that I was ace and like, you know, identifying myself as ace and not really being able to experience that attraction with a lot of people felt very at odds with what everybody else was trying to tell me about who or like, yeah, who or what I should find attractive because I'm like, I genuinely can't feel that. But then at the same time, I'm processing all this like colonized, like white knowledge. And I'm kind of like, now where do I, where do I go? And like, you know, like having to like fake interest, having to like pretend, like playing into these ideas was really weird. And like, you know, now, now that I'm here, now that I have like access to like higher levels of education with a lot of information online. And then, you know, at the same time being in a relationship myself, like having to really process what both I and my partner have been taught to prefer, to want, and to desire. And then knowing that we both fall outside of that, I think I think the dynamic in a queer relationship also, it just shifts the conversation entirely. And then both of us being not white also affects it. But, you know, that's all to say that it's definitely a, a difficult conversation to have. And being able to recognize the racial preferences that other people force upon you and trying to detangle it, it really is just about who do you surround yourself with and what information are you consuming? At least that, that was the case in my experience. On that note, lots of important things mentioned in this episode. And, you know, it really just encompasses the whole idea of like fear of wondering, of like how much a relationship or your connections with other people is built on real love, that subconscious de of desire to be with people, and then like going through a lot of like the ideas that society tells you to believe in. Point is, it's a very complicated topic. I think it's clear from all of our answers that none of us really have an answer. And, you know, we experience a spectrum of things relating to fetishism and undesirability. And, you know, I think I think I think we we all kind of agree that it's not really a binary. They go hand in hand with each other oftentimes. And really, they're not great things to experience, regardless of what you experience. Um but on that note, food for thought for everybody this Valentine's Day. Yeah. I was literally gonna say, here's some. Uh, <laughs> I was gonna say, here's some food for thought to go along with your box of chocolates this oh, Valentine's. Yeah. Day. Here's some like uncomfortable <laughs> info for you to probably think about, um, yeah, you and you should think about. Yeah. yeah. But yes, if you would like to listen to more of these conversations, you can follow us at Michigan and Color on Instagram. But you can also find Pass the Mic on nearly every platform. I know a lot of listeners are from Apple Podcasts or Spotify, but we're, we can also be found on Anchor, which you can leave, I think, a one-minute-long voice feedback. Um, <laughs> so I will be expecting <laughs> voice memos. I expect to hear your beautiful, beautiful voices. Otherwise, interact with us on, like, comment sections, send us your feedback, send us what you think. Spotify Mobile has a, a comment sort of reply feature, so... Interesting you guys developments can use that. on these platforms. I, I know, right? Like, this are, these are completely new. I love so, that. Yeah. But, yes, thanks so much for listening. Do we have any final words from the team? I hope you have a good Valentine's Day. Yeah. Happy love season. I'm a little salty because I'm very single, but I'll buy you some else? chocolate. Yeah. Listen, yeah, just buy the chocolate for, for myself. You want. Yeah, 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 yourself. Fe February 15th, you know how much chocolate costs that day? Two cents. Literally. It's so amazing. <laughs> no, I love it. Can we half quote that? Can we quote that? Yes. Half, half a penny. Half a penny, guys. Half a penny, guys. Use code uh, Michigan and Color at Target. No, I'm just kidding. No, no, no. no. I'm don't, just kidding. don't put that. <laughs> Jokey. And with that, we drop the mic. Yeah. Okay.